Good evening. We cover Israel, the shooting in California, the January 6th commission fight in the U.S. Congress. And we come back to New York to talk about Governor Cuomo's big announcement. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Thursday, May 27th, 2021. The United Nations Human Rights Chief says Israeli forces may have committed war crimes in the 11 days of airstrikes on Gaza this month. Michelle Bachelet spoke as the UN, UN Human Rights Council held a special session to discuss the grave human rights situation in Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. If found to be indiscriminate and disproportionate in their impact on civilians and civilian objects, such attacks may constitute war crimes. On the other hand, it is also a violation of international humanitarian law to locate military assets in densely populated civilian areas or to launch attacks from them. However, the actions of one party do not absolve the other from its obligations under international law. And Bachelet adds, unless the human rights situation is addressed, it'll only be a matter of time before the next round of violence ensues. And Pacifica's Eileen Alfandari has this story on the aftermath of yesterday's deadly shooting rampage in California. A ninth victim of the San Jose shooter has died at the hospital from injuries he suffered in yesterday's mass shooting at a VTA rail facility. Authorities say 57-year-old Samuel Cassidy opened fire on co-workers, then shot himself when law enforcement closed in. Cassidy's ex-wife says even more than a decade ago, he was often resentful and angry about what he thought were unfair work assignments. Santa Clara County officials say Cassidy had two semi automatic weapons on him and several magazines. It wasn't immediately clear whether he obtained them legally. It is the San Francisco Bay Area's deadliest mass shooting. Christopher Martinez reports on reaction. President Joe Biden has ordered flags to be flown at half-staff, and he issued a statement saying, in part, once again, I urge Congress to take immediate action and heed the call of the American people, including the vast majority of gun owners, to help end this epidemic epidemic of gun violence in America. Governor Gavin Newsom referred to other California mass shootings in Gilroy and San Bernardino. But it begs the damn question, what the hell's going on in the United States of America? What the hell's wrong with us? County Supervisor Cindy Chavez says the county is providing counseling for families of the victims, along with help from the district attorney's victim witness program. I just want to remind everybody that these folks were heroes during COVID-19. The buses never stopped running. VTA didn't stop running. They just kept at work. And now we're really calling on them to be heroes a second time to survive such a terrible, terrible tragedy. I'm Christopher Martinez. Thanks, Eileen and Christopher and the news staff at WBAI sister station, KPFA, Berkeley. In more national news. The sound of Trump supporters attacking the United States Capitol on January 6th, inspired by former President Donald Trump, who continues to maintain the 2020 election was stolen from him. 
In Washington, Senate Republicans are prepared to filibuster legislation establishing an independent bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th Capitol insurrection. With the Senate evenly split 50-50, Democrats would need the support of two Republicans to move to the commission bill. They've at most three prepared to vote for the commission. Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney of Utah, and Susan Collins of Maine. President Biden chimed in today as he wolfed down an ice cream cone during a stop in in Cleveland. I, I think it's true. I can't imagine anyone voting against establishing a commission on the greatest assault since the Civil War on the, on the Capitol. But at any rate, hey guys, I can't for ice cream. Back in Washington, Republican Minority Leader Senator Mitch McConnell reiterated his opposition to the commission. A story on Wednesday in Politico reported the Senate leader feels the commission would remind voters of Donald Trump's misadventures to their detriment in midterm elections. There's no new fact about that day. We need the Democrats' extraneous commission to uncover. The Department of Justice is deep into a massive criminal investigation. 440-plus people have already been arrested. Hundreds, hundreds have been charged. Even more arrests are said to be planned. And the Attorney General indicates this investigation will remain a top focus. And obviously the role of the former president has already been litigated exhaustively. I do not believe the additional extraneous commission that Democratic leaders want would uncover crucial new facts or promote healing. So I'll continue to support the real, serious work of our criminal justice system in our own Senate committees. And I'll continue to urge my colleagues to oppose this extraneous layer when the time comes for the Senate to vote. But Democratic leader Senator Chuck Schumer says the real reason for GOP intransigence towards the commission is fear of a backlash. Rather than accept the results of the election, and support the peaceful transfer of power, a hallmark of our democracy that has inspired democracies all over the world, former President Trump unabashedly lied repeatedly about the results of the election and fomented an armed rebellion, an armed rebellion at the United States Capitol. Lest we forget, 140 police officers were injured in the attack, five Americans, would eventually lose their lives. In the weeks since, faith in our elections has plummeted. The truth of the matter seems to be that Senate Republicans oppose the commission because they fear that it might upset Donald Trump and their party's midterm messaging. The Senate leader, Republican leader, warned his conference that January the 6th commission could hurt the Republicans politically. Well, too bad. Senator Chuck Schumer and Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins is a key vote courted by Democrats who want bipartisan approval of the January 6th commission. Collins says it's a good idea. It just needs a few tweaks. I am here today with three powerful advocates for the creation of an investigation into the events leading up to January 6th, the attacks on the Capitol, what happened that day, and what we can do to ensure that such an attack on the ultimate symbol of our democracy never happens again. And that is why we need an independent outside 
bipartisan commission, and that is what I have been working on, to make sure that it truly is balanced, fair, and bipartisan. Collins spoke with reporters after a meeting with the family of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who died after an altercation with pro-Trump invaders at the Capitol. His mother, Gladys Sicknick, spoke briefly with a reporter. Does it anger you, Mrs. Sicknick, to hear senators who do not support this commission, and what emotions do you feel when you're confronted with that? This is why I'm here today. I mean, you know, usually I'm staying in the background, and I just couldn't, couldn't stay quiet anymore. Heidi Byrick is co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. She says a January 6th commission is necessary because of the racist nature of the extremist groups invading the Capitol. The criminal investigations are completely important. But the fact that we had a movement in this country that involved factions of Nazi groups, militias, you know, QAnon supporters, this whole conclave of people who are able to come and storm and get into our capital and in the midst of such an important part of our democratic system is shocking. And it should be looked at at every angle. How did this movement come, you know, come about? What was the role Trump played in it? What happened with capital security? I mean, every piece of this should be figured out. It's just it is unbelievably shocking that an industrialized democracy like ours could have suffered an event like that. I think everybody has an opinion. Who was behind this? Was a bunch of crazy people motivated by their love of Trump? Or was this a planned event with people like Roger Stone and the rest of these people perfectly involved in knowing exactly what they were doing with the Proud Boys and stirring this up? Your question gets the heart of the kinds of things we need to know. How orchestrated was this? There are now charges laid at the feet of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers that there was a lot of organizing here. What were the role of Trump officials or Trump allies like Roger Stone? What responsibility does Trump play? What do people have to say who showed up at the storming of the Capitol and who appeared before that moment to just be conservative Trump supporters? How did that happen? These are all questions that we need to get to the bottom of. And it's very, very important to know if this was orchestrated in some way. It would also be nice to know what role the tech companies played in setting the scene for this, the kind of online organizing that preceded this. Is this a Kennedy assassination? I mean, what's going on here? This is a deep conspiracy you're talking about, the possibility of one. It would be quite frightening. Of course, I'm not saying this has happened. If there was some kind of orchestration behind the scenes between Trump campaign officials or some other kind of officials related to Trump and stirring this up and driving this into the Capitol. At this point, there's no evidence that that's the case. But we'd certainly want to know if that's the case, even if that's not the case, how this came to be. Right. How orchestrated was this whole situation? What are the Republicans trying to get out from under here? It appears that they don't want to end up having to take responsibility for the actions of some of their members, including President Trump. And this may show that the Republican Party did not take seriously enough the people in their ranks who basically don't believe in our democracy. And I don't think that they want that kind of record to come out. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she compared the Holocaust to wearing a mask. What do you think of that, Damon? It's just absolutely despicable. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is just a font of conspiracy theories, bigotry, and this comment about the Holocaust. It's just, it's disgusting, frankly. It's, I don't know how a person like that gets elected 
to one of the highest offices in our government, frankly. We used to think of people like this as the fringe. Now they're every day in the media on the headlines. They're not the fringe anymore. Do you have a little feeling if I told you so to the people who might have said years ago, oh, why do you focus on these fringe crises? They're never going to do anything or amount to much. Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of me that wants to say I told you so. Of course, been screaming from the hills for more than a decade about the fact that fringe characters were being mainstreamed, fringe ideas, racist ideas, anti-Semitic ideas, etc., were being mainstreamed, and that experience since 2016 has shown how absolutely that is the case. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is a classic example of this, and the fact that the Republicans aren't going to discipline somebody in their ranks who behaves like this is horrifying. There should be no, quote, mainstream political party in this country that allows their members to engage in these kinds of things. It just shows how much hate we have now in the mainstream of our society. Transition from majority white to majority minority America is not going to go without a lot of struggle. When I was working at the Southern Poverty Law Center, we, we started talking about this in the early 2000s, that these demographic changes are what was driving the number of hate groups up, the number of extremists. You combine that with the online space that spreads hatred so quickly, and you get a very combustible situation. And yes, I think we're in for a rocky ride until people really accept that this is going to be a multicultural society and white people aren't going to be the majority sometime in the coming decades. And it's frankly not something to be afraid of. Heidi Byrick is co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Former President Trump has made it clear he opposes any panel that investigates the Capitol attack, a failed effort on his part to overturn Joe Biden's win. Meanwhile, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene said today that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's rebuke of her comments comparing mask mandates to the treatment of Jewish people during the Holocaust was unfortunate and blindsided her. And in related news, the Associated Press reports current and former enlistees and officers in nearly every branch of the armed services described a deep-rooted culture of racism and discrimination that stubbornly festers despite repeated efforts at eradication. The military says it processed more than 750 complaints of discrimination by race or ethnicity from service members in fiscal year 2020 alone. According to the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, civilians working in the financial technical and support sectors of the Army, Air Force, and Navy also filed 900 complaints of racial discrimination and over 350 complaints of discrimination by skin color. In February, Lord Lloyd J. Austin III, a former Army general who is now Secretary of Defense, the first black man to serve in the post, ordered commanders and supervisors to take an operational pause for one day to discuss extremism in the ranks with their service members. In the midst of last year's summer of unrest, sparked by police killings of black Americans across the nation, Army General Mark A. Milley, who is also the Department of Defense's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told congressional leaders the military cannot afford racism or discrimination. Meanwhile, Austin pledged to rid the ranks of racists and extremists during his confrontation confirmation hearing before Congress, which came on the heels of the Capitol insurrection. You're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. If a side effect of the COVID-19 vaccine keeps you from work, you'll be covered, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced Thursday. In an effort to, as the governor said, eliminate reasons New Yorkers may be hesitant to get the vaccine, Cuomo said any COVID-19 vaccine recovery period due to side effects will be covered by the state's paid sick leave law. The sick day policy is in addition to another state rule 
mandating employers give workers four hours off to get a shot and another four hours if the employee is going for a second dose. The news comes as the latest vaccination rates are released. 64.4% of statewide residents 18 and older have received at least one dose of the vaccine, while 55.8% of those 18 and older are now fully vaccinated. Cuomo added the statewide positivity rate is 0.65%, its lowest as August 27th. Hospitalizations, 1,223 are at their lowest was his number first, and 10 people died in the last day, sadly. And Governor Cuomo made another big announcement today. The $11 billion construction project to connect the Long Island Railroad is completed, and the facility will open next year. All the major construction is complete. Harold interlocking, the tunnels coming from Queens, the concourses at Grand Central, all the construction is complete. Uh, we still have some systems work to do, electrical systems, etc. but all the construction is complete. It's going to open up next year. It brings double the number of LIR trains into Manhattan. It means you can come into the east side of Manhattan as opposed to going to Penn and then having to come all the way back to the east side. It reduces the commute time by 40 minutes. And, and uh, Harold Interlocking is the busiest commuter train switching area in the United States. It's located in Queens. Uh, he spent over a billion dollars on modernizing or will spend a billion dollars to modernize that so it can handle the vast increase of trains that's expected to now service Grand Central Station, as well as Penn Station. Cuomo went on to describe the vast size of the underground development he says covers several city blocks stretching north of Grand Central Station before he led reporters on a tour. East side access is three stories below the existing Grand Central two stories. That's the concept. We're going to build new concourses beneath the existing Grand Central concourses. Four new levels, four passenger platforms, capacity for eight trains at a time, 24 trains per hour underneath Grand Central. This goes from Grand Central, 42nd Street, to 49th Street. It is an underground development that goes seven or eight blocks underground. Just imagine that. There is no other terminal that does that. We're going to build underground central, and then we're going to build north, seven, eight blocks north underneath at that level. Amazing. Governor Andrew Cuomo, the work of the sand hogs, the workers whose day begins when everyone else is going home, sinking the tunnels and holes in the ground that make up unseen New York City. The project connects the Long Island Railroad to Grand Central Terminal through a new 350,000 square foot concourse. We'll be talking more about development and overdevelopment in New York City later in the WBAI news on later days in the New York uh, in the news. Last night, 
uh, by the way, 48,245 people slept in Department of Homeless Services shelters in New York. That's according to the latest figures provided by the city on Tuesday, which can't help but make me think and maybe many listeners to this broadcast of why we can do these incredible underground projects that are like something out of the 23rd century that allow vast numbers of workers to come to New York and yet it's impossible to find homes and places to sleep for 48,000 people every night. The Bowery Mission reports that another 4,000 homeless New Yorkers sleep on city streets. According to the New York City Council, part of the problem of getting homeless New Yorkers into apartments is because housing vouchers, housing vouchers are insufficient. Linda Perry reports. The city's continuing drive to move New Yorkers out of shelters into permanent housing. The New York City Council voted to increase the amount of the city's rental voucher assistance program. This to align it with Section 8. That's the country's most successful rental assistance voucher. It increases the amount of funds for homeless New Yorkers to obtain one and two bedroom apartments. Council Speaker Corey Johnson says the current amount of rental assistance is insufficient to cover the median cost of housing in New York City. In New York City, Section 8, the country's most successful rental assistance voucher is pegged at $1,945 for a one-bedroom apartment or $2,217 for a two-bedroom apartment. Meanwhile, City FEPS vouchers are capped at $1,265 per month for a single adult and $1,580 for a family of three or four. Not adequate. By increasing the amount the voucher pays, the city would increase the number of units available to individuals and families with vouchers. According to research by StreetEasy, which was released last month, record high rent drops and high inventory levels from COVID-19 have more than doubled the number of homes on the market that are deemed affordable for Section 8 voucher participants. According to StreetEasy, using all apartments listed from July through December of 2020, only 564 units, let me repeat that, only 564 units would meet current city FEP standards, whereas 71,934 would meet Section 8 standards. The advocacy community and homeless New Yorkers um, made their voices very uh, clear for the last several years that the city steps vouchers as they exist don't work. Stephen Levin is chair of the city council's general welfare committee. He says data shows that only four or five percent of families who receive city FEPS or the family eviction prevention supplement voucher in any given month actually land an apartment, meaning 95 to 96 percent do not. Levin said families are languishing in the shelter system for far too long. I spoke on the phone today with somebody who's been in shelter for 800 days, 800 days, and she's working. She has a job. Um, and um, that cannot be the city that we love. That cannot, that does not reflect our values. Um, and it's strictly a policy uh, decision. And <clears throat> what we have done today is open up that availability um, for apartments, for people exiting shelter, um, so that they can actually get a home in New York, to actually get a home. I mean, I think about, um, here I am, I'm in my apartment, I have my two children here, um, and um, I think about the kids who are in a hotel room, um, in a hotel room for 800 days. 
and what that does to their lives. Um, uh, my son isn't even 800 days old yet. And, um, and so um, it's my hope, it's my, my sincere hope that uh, this legislation will uh, make a meaningful impact in being able to move those vulnerable New Yorkers who are just trying to get their foot in the door permanent housing to have that opportunity. Brooklyn Council Member Steve Levin, Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Back to you, Paul. Thanks, Linda. And finally, more than a dozen labor organizations and progressive groups urged Governor Andrew Cuomo to reconsider the state's current guidance on mask wearing for fully vaccinated people indoors. It comes over concerns the new guidelines could put vulnerable workers at risk. In a letter to Cuomo, the group's Um, And Health Commissioner Howard Zucker, the groups pointed to the possibility of unvaccinated people going maskless indoors and spreading the coronavirus as a result. The letter comes a week after New York backed the recommendations of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that largely ends mask wearing for fully vaccinated people in most settings, save for mass transit or hospitals. At the same time, New York stripped many pandemic-related guidelines for public gatherings and businesses. The concern for groups that signed on to the letter, including retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, Make the Road New York, Legal Aid Society of New York among them, is vulnerable workers could be exposed to the virus by unvaccinated, unmasked people. And that's some of the news for Thursday, May 27, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry and with help from Eileen Alfandari. Our engineer is Reggie Jackson, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.